Thank you, Pastor Wagner. Let me encourage you, if you would, dear people, to turn with me this evening to the Old Testament book of Numbers. That's the fourth book of the Bible uh, in that section of the, of the Hebrew Bible, which is often referred to as the Torah. So we're going to look tonight at Numbers chapter 24 and verses 10 through 19, and we'll be focusing on our text, which we find in the 17th verse of this chapter. Hear the word of the true and living God, Numbers chapter 24, beginning with verse 10. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, so, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them these three times. Therefore, now flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. And now behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of one who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth or Tumult. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. All flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Let's ask for God's blessing upon the ministry of this, his word. Let us pray. O Holy Fathers, we bow in your presence. We do indeed remember, O God, the promise of your own beloved Son, who told us that when the Spirit would come, he would take the things of your Son and reveal them to men. And though we know, O oh Lord, that in a special way this promise found fulfillment in the ministry of the apostles, we do know that it is the blessed ongoing ministry of your Spirit to reveal your Son in all of his glory and beauty and power. And so we cry out to you tonight through our Lord Jesus Christ that you would send 
your spirit upon this gathered people this evening that we may be given eyes afresh to behold the beauty of your son in all the glory of this messianic prophecy and that we'll find our hearts running out to you and our wills and our affections wrapped up entirely in your son for we do offer this our prayer in his name amen now we saw from our pastor this morning as he began this series of prophecies from the old testament concerning the lord jesus christ we see this remarkable phenomenon of what we call biblical prophecy and one of the most striking, if not the single fascinating feature of Old Testament prophecy is when we find that speaking or foretelling, forecasting far in advance the coming of the Messiah, the Lord's Christ, the Anointed One. And thus the most beautiful and impressive aspect then of biblical prophecy is surely that of messianic foretelling. And throughout the Old Testament, from the earliest chapters of Genesis through to the last chapters of Malachi, we discovered the Holy Spirit inspired, moved men to speak of the coming of the King, of the Prince, of the Servant of God, of the Christ, of Jesus, the Savior of His people. Sometimes prophecies about the Messiah are given to us by great and worthy servants of God. In connection uh, with this, one thinks very often of whom we heard from this morning, Isaiah, who was a prophet of the royal court, who was bold enough and brave enough to speak the truth, even when that truth could make those on whom he was dependent very uncomfortable. And such integrity was not always popular nor well received. It was Isaiah who foretold in the seventh chapter of his prophecy, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, whom Matthew refers in, at the beginning of his gospel. But sometimes, sometimes, those who were gifted with the privilege of foretelling the coming of the Messiah were not noble nor worthy men. And that leads me to point out that on the basis of this story, read now in your hearing, that good things often come in some of the most unlikely packages. I suppose that you've had an experience similar to the one that I'm about to tell. And uh, I suppose that our children are about to experience it shortly themselves all over again, the experience of looking at packages under the Christmas tree and wondering what in the world is contained within them. And to be sure, your own past has taught you that you cannot always say in advance what is to be found in a given package from the appearance that it bears on the outside. And clever parents, for example, will sometimes go to considerable lengths to disguise what is in 
a particular package uh, by its content. And certainly that's by the way it's decorated on the outside. And that's certainly true in my household when I was growing up as a boy. And we still do the same thing today. I think of the story of a friend of mine whose family uh, always went to great lengths to disguise the packages which he would give to his grandfather. And the reason why they did this was because it was always quite a very impressive spectacle to watch the way in which he would always open his presents. And my friend said that the reason why they did that was to train himself and the other children to be patient in the opening of the gifts and waiting their turn. And he related how on one occasion his grandfather was given a flashlight. But the package in which that flashlight was enclosed bore no resemblance whatever at all to a flashlight. They had wrapped it in 24, 24 separate sheets of comic newspaper and uh, in addition to the box and whatever else was on the outside of the box. So there they sat that, that evening around the Christmas tree uh, when they opened their presents and very meticulously his grandfather took out his penknife and carefully began the process of opening the beautiful paper on the outside of the package. And when he had done so, he would take each piece of paper, he would fold it slowly, and then deliberately place it to one side. And then he proceeded to do that with each of the 24 separate sheets of paper, of newspaper, as well. And so that the point was made by the time he had finished that there wasn't any necessary connection as between the external appearance of a package in this regard and the real core of the thing on the inside in addition to the lesson of patience. Well, here in this passage of scripture, we're given uh, another powerful illustration on the spiritual plane that this is so. And the scripture which I read in our hearing this evening has to do with Balaam, this strange figure of a man in the Old Testament, a prophet of God, mind you, to be sure, but not an admirable character. He was gifted with the privilege of othering this magnificent messianic prophecy, but himself was a man of little or no scruples at all. Indeed, a man whose gifts and abilities, even in spiritual things, sometimes seems to have been offered for sale to the higher, to the highest bidder. He, now, Balaam was a rascal. He was a scoundrel, a traitor, really, to the calling of God. And in the end, in the 31st chapter of the Old Testament book of Numbers, he died a very disgraceful and miserable death among the enemies of the people of God. And yet these words 
fell from his lips. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and batter the brow of Moab, and destroy all the sons of Tumult or Sheth. He had been hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to come and place his curse, that is, his curse reinforced by his authority as a prophet of God upon Israel, upon the people of God. And each time, you'll remember, Balaam was diverted from that purpose until Balak, the king of Moab, was filled with other indignation and disgust And then at the close of that effort to bring a curse upon the people of God, Balaam, the unlikely prophet, others, this glorious, wonderful prophecy, words regarding the coming of Israel's Messiah. And there is something, I think, startling and surprising about that, but perhaps not as startling and surprising as might otherwise be the case, had not we ourselves of having been taught some really great truths by some unlikely people, having learned spiritual truth, you and I, even from those with feet of clay. And so Balaam's character as a man in this respect, and I can't go into detail of his character tonight, You can read about it not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament commentary upon his life in three or four places of the New Testament. So Balaam's character as a man need not put us off from a closer look at what the Lord would have to teach us from these words of his prophecy. What then can we learn from this highly unlikely prophet in this passage? It was, as you may have surmised already, a very beautiful predictive prophecy. I shall see him. I shall behold him. A star is to come out of Jacob, and a scepter will rise out of Israel. Well, in the first instance, and this being the first point this evening, it becomes clear to us as Balaam speaks that he has in view a time not in the immediate future, but far off in the distance as viewed from the perspective of his own day. And we know this to be so right away from the very way in which he introduces these words. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not near. And Bible students sometimes struggle with the question of what or to whom is this prophecy referring. I once had a Bible, and perhaps I still do, stored away somewhere in some boxes. Prophecies that foretell the coming of uh, the Messiah with a star placed beside them in a verse, which the editors of that Bible inform us must be messianic prophecy. Well, of course, there is nothing inspired about that kind of editorial enterprise in such a Bible. 
Some have suggested that what is in view here is the Davidic kingdom, which later on would indeed be established, the kingdom, uh, the dynasty that would rule Israel and then Judah until the time of the Babylonian captivity, which in the end would bring forth the Lord's own Christ. And I suppose that it's possible <coughs> that something like that perhaps can be in view here in this verse. That is that the primary reference may be David's kingdom and the ultimate reference uh, is to the coming of Christ himself. But in my own mind and in my own study, I think it seems to be clear beyond all contradiction that what the prophet is telling us is that the Lord in his own fullness of time, he is to come who is the Savior of his people, and that this is one of many of those beautiful passages in the Old Testament which reassures us to that effect. But now you notice, and this in the second place, that Balaam speaks both of a star and of a scepter. What may he mean by these references to a star and a scepter? A star shall come out of Jacob, and the scepter shall rise out of Israel. What is the significance in this respect, then, of a star? How are we to understand this prophet? Well, we remember, of course, that it was by a star long afterward that the magi, the wise men from the east, were led from their native lands all the way across the desert until they arrived at length in Jerusalem and then in Bethlehem where they worshipped and adored the Lord Jesus Christ, the infant child of Mary. And we all know that the star is one of those lights in the heavens. It is a celestial object, the beauty of which that we can only behold from afar. And from afar, we behold stars across the distance of space. And so it was from afar that Balaam beheld this star across the distance of time. And he was given to see into the future something of the marvel and the beauty of this star's coming in his own day. And in the Bible, a star speaks of majesty, of splendor, and of glory. And when Balaam says that the star is to come out of Jacob, we're to understand that glory and majesty are to come forth from among the people of God. For the name Jacob in this context is meant to represent the nation of Israel. And then he carries it all a step further as well. He says not only will there be a star, but there will also be a scepter. And that word is recognized, is it not, by us even today. The symbol of royal, regal authority is a scepter. The king extends his scepter with, to those with whom he is pleased, and he withholds it from those who have fallen under his displeasure. 
So a scepter means royalty. And the one who is to come, therefore, according to Balaam's prophecy, is a king clothed in majesty and glory. A king who is to rule over all the earth. A king who is to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies. A king who is God's own son. You'll remember that those magi, those wise men said when they came to Jerusalem, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And then you will see from this passage and this in the third place, that the king is not only only royal, glorious, splendid, and majestic, but he is also actively engaged in the exercise of his kingly power. He shall batter, we're told, the corners, the brow, or that's really a reference to the corners of Moab. He shall destroy all the sons of Tumult or Sheth. That is to say, he will put down In the exercise of his royal prerogatives, he will put down his enemies and will establish the cause of peace and justice and truth and righteousness in the world. And that leads us to think of something else in connection with this prophecy and this then in the fourth place. Surely this prophecy... This prophecy, this marvelous word from the Old Testament has in it a messianic aspect, a longing for the spread of the gospel and obedience to it. At times, when you read the story of Balaam's in Numbers, you detect that he was of two minds. Surely he wanted often to serve the true and living God, even though his own craving and greed led him in the wrong direction. And there is something of that fleeting longing, even in him, to obey what he gives voice to in this prophecy as he holds up before us all the star and scepter king who was one day to come. But however it may have been with Balaam, you find in the Old Testament and throughout all the past, over and over again, expressions of intense longing for something more and for something better. Longings indeed for a king and the kingdom of peace and of righteousness in the world. And in the scriptures themselves, we discover that the Lord Jesus Christ is so called far in advance of his own coming. As we heard afresh this morning, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Life, is it not, is full of longing. We see it. In our children at Christmas time, longing for Christmas Day, longing for the opportunity to discover just what is hidden 
in those packages so beautifully wrapped for them and placed under the Christmas tree. A man longs for the day when he can take his bride unto himself. Parents long for the day when their children have grown up into Christian manhood and womanhood. And we all long for brighter days than the dark seasons through which we occasionally pass. We long if we are sick or our loved ones are sick for ourselves or for them to be whole and well again. If we are cast down, we long for an encouraging and cheering word. And I suppose that in many a long year, humankind has not been so downcast in looking for answers to the distressing problems which surround us in our own presently politically divided nation. The public spectacle that is placarded before us almost daily at the present is a disgrace and disgusting to us all. And drug and child abuse are being exposed today as never before and it's followed by the chill of doubt and suspicion of certain ecclesiastical institutions who have turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to the exposure of sunlight and the thundering cries of former victims who are now adults. And then with the coming of this yearly season upon us, with all of its hurry and scurry, it's simply impossible for the serious thinking Christian to avoid facing the reality that the greed of today's commercialism has successfully exploited to its own ends and purposes the birth of our baby king for selfish gain. And they withhold from our king the gifts that ought to be offered from the glory of his immaculate birth. Where, pray tell, is the gold of worship? Where's the frankincense of praise? Where is the myrrh of genuine penitence over crimes perpetrated against his majesty's law and government, who all of whom, ha, whom have engaged in what R.C. Sproul called cosmic treason against the God of the Bible? We live as well, you and I, in the day when the threat of domestic and foreign ter- terrorism is at an all-time high. And we know, you and I, that we are but mere mortals and that our own abilities can do little, if anything at all, to accomplish the ultimate reign of peace in the world. And the truth be told that we often feel that we're at the mercy of the madmen of the world. And in spite of all of those frightening realities the greater truth to be told is that we are at the mercy of a benevolent dictator whose long-suffering will not suffer forever such widespread contempt and rejection of his rule and reign of righteousness in the world 
And he will, according to Isaiah chapter 42, in the ultimate sense, bring justice to the nations, bring forth justice for truth, and who will establish justice in the earth. But the great thing to remember, indeed, the great thing that at all times to be before our minds and our hearts is that our peace Yours and mine, as well as our satisfaction and all of our hopes for the future, along with whatever aspirations may be in the direction of goodness and purity and love and light and peace, are all wrapped up and can only be realized in the star that has come out of Jacob and the scepter which has risen out of Israel, indeed the star and scepter king of Bethlehem. And we confess that as Christians, as Christmas time draws near, and we do so joyfully with gladness and satisfaction in our hearts. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is king, and though the nations rage, And though the madness may seem to prevail at the present on every side, and though darkness continues to resist the light of his birth, nonetheless, we know that nothing can stay his hand. Nor anyone, nor anything can prevent him from the accomplishment, from the fruition of his own purposes. And we need to remember, you and I, as I close, that he, this infant boy, born of Mary, born in a stable in Bethlehem, is king of all the world. Balaam was a most unusual and unlikely package from which to unwrap such a glorious and majestic gift. And Bethlehem, said the prophet Micah, the little among the thousands of Judah, the most unlikely place for a ruler to be born, and moreover still, a common cattle trough made the most unlikely bed for royalty. But we see, and so we learn from this passage, that the most unlikely packages can conceal the best gifts that God has to offer us. And you, you of all people, may be the most unlikely person in whom for God to unwrap the gift of his son. You may think that of all people, you were the most unlikely candidate or recipient for the gift of his grace. Nonetheless, God has sent his son into the world, and he came into the world for such as the likes of you and of me. May God be pleased, if you're a stranger to his grace, to unwrap the gift of his Son in your heart, and may his birth give birth to you. Let us pray.